0: We've come to John chapter 1, verse 29, 29 to 34. The Lamb of God and Son of God. Christ is both the Lamb of God and the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said... After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that Christ is indeed our Lamb, and he is the Son of God. Thank you that he is the Lamb that takes away our sin. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to believe in this testimony given here in your word by John, John, who was the forerunner and supreme prophet because he was the forerunner of Christ. Thank you for his testimony. And also thank you that this word we study is not human words, but these are the words of your Holy Spirit given to your apostle John, that we might understand, believe, and grow in our faith. May that be true. May you be gracious to us and fill us with your spirit that you might guide us into all truth. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, John the Apostle has been telling us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, since verse 19, he's been telling us about the testimony of John the Baptist, what John says about himself and what John says in relation to Christ. Now, more specifically, in relation to Christ in verses 29 to 34, who is Christ to John? Who is Christ to John? When I say John, I primarily am speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, and of course, John the Apostle is the one who recorded these words of John the Baptist and other incidents here and words in this book. So, John the Baptist, who? is Christ according to John the Baptist. Well, in this passage, verse 29, he is the Lamb of God. And then in verses 30 to 34, 30 to 34, we have John subordinating himself, humbling himself in the realization that he knows that Christ is the Son of God. He is of a divine nature. So in verse 29, he has a human nature. And in verses 30 to 34, He is focused on his divine nature. So John the Baptist actually believes these two fundamental truths about Christ, the two natures of Christ, which is a very essential doctrine to the Christian faith. We must believe that Jesus had a divine nature and a human nature. We cannot say he only had a divine nature and we cannot say he only had a human nature. We must believe he had a perfect human nature with full deity, with the full divine nature, both in one person, that is Jesus Christ. And so, verse 29, let's see what John says. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says the next day. The next day because the previous day the Jewish authorities, the Jewish officials, the priests and the Levites sent messengers to John the Baptist to inquire, who are you? Why are you preaching this way? Why are you baptizing? Why are you believing like this? Who are you? Why are you there in the wilderness? What are you doing here? Who are you, John? And John categorically denied that he was the Christ or the prophet or Elijah in a reincarnated or in a reappearance of Elijah. He was neither of those things. He was um, John, the son of Zacharias, sent to be the forerunner, the messenger of God right before Christ appears. So the previous day is when he clarified all this to the religious leaders of the day. Now the next day, he is able to, he sees Christ approaching and then he preaches that Christ is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. So that's the next day. And actually, in one Jewish source, it does say that the day before Christ appears and is manifested in a public way in terms of beginning his public ministry, that the previous day there would be clarification from the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is John the Baptist. And so the next day, it's the day to declare it openly in front of the people. And it says, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, exclamation. And John's remarks about Christ will continue to verse 34. But first let's see verse 29 and meditate on this verse for a few moments. Verse 29 is one of the classic and most foundational verses in the whole of the Bible. John 1, 29, in reference to the identity of Christ and the ministry of Christ, right here we have it summarized in one sentence in verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we see this word, behold, it's not a word that we use very often today in English, But in the Hebrew text and also as it's rendered into the Greek language of the New Testament and then into English, we see this word behold quite frequently throughout the Bible. And it's akin to us saying see or look or listen, something like that. But the Bible does it at certain significant points when it's trying to get the reader or the hearer's attention, just as we do it. Listen, pay attention. When we say things like that, we're trying to get the hearer or the reader's Attention. And that's what John is doing here. The attention of everybody now is to be directed to this one he's preaching about, that is Jesus Christ. So if our focus and attention should be on Jesus Christ, well, who is he? Here he calls him the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. We're here encountering a metaphor. Jesus was not literally a lamb, correct? He was not an animal like the basic or the lamb of sheep. He was not like that. He did not come in that form at all, literally or in, in just in a temporary form. He did not come in the shape of a lamb. So what did John mean? He meant it in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense. What did he mean? He meant that Jesus is the unblemished lamb of God. He meant that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all the lambs of the Old Testament. There were lambs that were sacrificed on the day of the Passover. The day of the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. That symbol Christ fulfills. The Passover lamb signified how God passed over the houses that would kill the lamb and sprinkle its blood, that he would pass over those houses that did it, which were mostly the houses of the sons of Israel. He passed over those. They did not experience death, but the Egyptians who refused to do it, they experienced death, a wide-scale massacre of their firstborn, their firstborn of their households and the firstborn of their cattle. Suddenly, in one night, they all died and there was a great outcry. Well, the Passover that Christ has given to us is not only about physical death, but it's about spiritual death. When the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us, metaphorically or spiritually speaking, then we do not experience the death we deserve. We don't experience it because Christ's blood is sprinkled on us. Or take, for example, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, there was a lamb or a goat that was sacrificed and offered there in the tabernacle and its blood was uh, given over to the forgiveness of the sins of the sons of Israel. And yet in the same way, or in a better way, Christ, he is the one who takes away our sin by it being offered on the altar. He was offered on the altar of God, and he took away our sin. Or let's say, for example, another symbolism of the Day of Atonement is how one of the goats was supposed to have all of the sins of the people confessed on it, and then it was supposed to be escorted into the wilderness to a solitary land. Well, what does that represent? It represents the, the sins of the people being taken away, being taken away off into a solitary land so that they're not seeing their sins anymore. The sins of the people represented on this goat is disappearing and going off to a solitary land that the people don't encounter Again, in the same way, Jesus, that's why he says the lamb of God who takes away, he takes away, he takes away our sins so that we are not guilty for the sins that we deserve. This is the sense in which Christ is the lamb of God. And also we mentioned that the lambs were to be unblemished or we said that Christ was an unblemished lamb. Well, it does teach us in the Bible that the lambs that were to be offered there in the Old Testament were also to be unblemished lamb. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 17 verse 1. Deuteronomy 17 verse 1. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect. For that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Now, God is not the kind that needs to see a healthy, wholesome animal before he can eat it. He's not talking about that. This is there as a representation or as a sign, a type of sin. So, unblemished animals were to be offered to God. Why? because an unblemished animal represents sinlessness which Christ would have to pay for our sins so if they believed in the coming death of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins they would bring unblemished animals to the sacrifice because they were not putting their hope in the animal they were putting their hope in the sinlessness of Christ and Christ was indeed sinless john 8:46 which one of you convicts me of sin? He challenged the people. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 1 Peter 2, 21 to 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Christ, in his earthly life and ministry, he committed no sin whatsoever. In thought, word, or deed, he was unblemished and died as a sacrifice for us. We have to also clarify something. Did the saints of the Old Testament understand this? Or is this teaching that John is preaching here, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, is this a new teaching? Is this a new way of salvation? Or was the way of salvation always the same? From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, is the one way of salvation, is there only one way? Is it all one and the same? And the answer is yes. It's one and the same. There are not different ways of salvation. There cannot be that. We will show, for example, in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 6. Psalm 40, verse 6. Here we see that David, when he writes this, understands, and the people he instructs understand that sacrifices are insufficient. Notice, Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law... Is within my heart. Now, what is this and who is speaking here? We know David is writing at the beginning of the psalm. We know David is the composer, the author of this psalm, but who is speaking and to whom is he speaking? If you cross reference this to Hebrews 10 5 to 7, Hebrews 10 5 to 7, the speaker here is Christ, the Son of God, speaking to the Father. The Son is speaking to the Father, and then He says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. You, Father, you have not desired, and you have not required these sacrifices. You haven't desired them, and you haven't required them. But wait a minute. Since the time of Adam and Eve, and the time of Moses, they were desired and required in a sense. Because God says that they must offer them. So in what way are they not desired and required? They're not desired and required as the means of salvation, as the means of the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. They're not desired and required for that. Only Christ is desired and required. That's why he says in verse 7, Then I said, that's Christ speaking, Then I, Christ, said, Behold, I come, In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. He says that he comes into the world because in the scroll of the book it's written of Christ, what Christ is supposed to do, and Christ is going to delight in doing the will of God because God's law is in his heart. And what is the will of God? To die for our sins. So here... David clearly teaches that the salvation of people does not reside in these animals. Also, you might recall, we read Psalm 50. We read Psalm 50, and there, Psalm 50, God says, God says in Psalm 50, verse 12, Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. He says, he's not going to eat bulls and goats or and drink the blood of goats. God's not hungry and thirsty, correct? Correct. So when the sacrifices are offered, who eats, who eats the flesh of the animals? The people do. The priests, the Levites, and the people do. God doesn't come down and eat the flesh of the animals. Or if he's thirsty, he doesn't drink blood. He doesn't do anything like that. So the sacrifices aren't offered to benefit God. Then why are they there? To represent the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why they are there. And what God really desires is for us to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay our vows. And what would happen that would cause us to offer to God a a sacrifice of thanksgiving? It would be that once we are redeemed, we would thank God for forgiving us of our sins. Then that would be a sacrifice to God of thanksgiving and pay our vows. When we are converted we desire to please God now. We make a covenant with God. We commit to God. We confess to God. We call upon His name. Or in this verse, it says, we make a vow to God. So if we make a vow to God, if we say we are Christians and followers of Christ, then from that day forward, we must act in conformity to Christ. Pursue that godliness and righteousness. Furthermore, Furthermore, we have Psalm 49. Psalm 49. We've been saying that the animals themselves were known in the Old Testament to be insufficient. Insufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Insufficient for salvation. Insufficient to please God, ultimately. Insufficient in that they are not for God's diet. God does not need to eat. He is not a petty deity. He's not an idol or a man. But then, we might ask, can another man save me? Can another human save me? Not animal, but can another man, can another human save me or save my soul? The Old Testament categorically says no to that too. Another mere man cannot save us. Psalm 49, verse 7. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem His brother, or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. We can't even have another one of us save us. It cannot happen. It doesn't happen. It says in verses 7 to 9 the redemption of his soul is costly. So if the redemption of his soul is costly, who's going to pay the cost? Psalm 40 told us. Christ will pay the cost. Christ will pay the cost. So throughout the Old Testament, they were not putting their hope in works or their rituals or their neighbors or their animals, nothing. They were, if they were saved, if they were true believers, they were looking forward to the coming of the death of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what John the Baptist is announcing. He's announcing that Christ has now come. They were expecting him to come, but now he has come in his first coming to take away our sins. Then when it says he takes away our sins, in what sense does he take them away? He takes them away completely, absolutely, so that we are not going to ever experience the sentence of condemnation for our sins. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Malachi chapter 7. Malachi chapter 7, verse 18. Malachi 7, I'm sorry, um, Micah. Micah chapter 7. Micah 7 verse 18. 7, 18. And what does Micah say? Micah 7, he says, verse 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. What does God do? God is so unique in this, there's no other God like him who passes over our rebellion. He he passes over... Um, all of our sins, our iniquities. He pardons them. He does so for His remnant. Notice there. Not for everybody, but for His remnant, He takes care of us. His anger is not against us anymore, but He displays and gives us His unchanging love, steadfast love. It will not disappear. It will not dissipate. It will not weaken. Nothing will happen to it. And His compassion toward us is as though He treads on our iniquities underfoot. When we tread or when we step on things, they are usually loathsome and despise things. And that's what God does to our sins. He gets rid of them or takes them away by tr- trampling upon our sins. And not only that, He casts them into the depth of the sea. Once something is cast into the depth of the sea, can it be recovered? No. No. Will we recover it? No. If we think about God casting our sins into the deepest of oceans, there's no way that He's going to call them up again. There's no way He's going to go down uh, deep sea diving and pull up our sins and then manifest our sins to us and hold us accountable on the day of judgment. It's not going to happen. He casts them away. He takes them completely away. And He grants to us truth And unchanging love, which he promised the forefathers. That's what we have in him. And one more place, one more place is Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 10. 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust." He doesn't give us what we deserve, verse 10 says. He does not give us that. In fact, he has loving kindness toward us as high as the heavens are above the earth. That is immense, correct? That's how much immensity or abundance his loving kindness is toward us. It goes from earth all the way up into the heavens, the great distance up into the heavens. And not only that, he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Great distance, even across the globe, he removes them. And then he treats us like father to son, father to his children. He gives us compassion because we fear him. He is compassionate toward us or merciful toward us because we belong to him, we are part of. Of his family, And he knows that we have to have this happen. It cannot happen by our own strength, by our own effort, because he knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. That's who we are. We are feeble. We are weak. We cannot do what we need to do for our salvation. So if we can't do it, God does it for us that we might be saved. That's the kind of love and compassion he manifests. To us, This is the sense in which he takes it away, completely takes it away. So we should have faith in this, confidence in this, and not be miserable and guilty in the squalor of our sins. That's not the way we should be living, but live with the realization that he has removed it completely away from us. Verse 29, back to John 1.29. John 1.29. It says, he takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. This phrase, the sin, is singular here, but John is using it in order to be using this in the collective singular sense. He's talking about sins, all of our sins, all of our sins, but he's saying it with one short word in a collective singular word. That's the way in which he is using the word the sin of the world. Even in English, we have certain nouns that are singular and they are known as collective singular nouns, such as the word fish. If you want to say one fish or 10 fish, you just say fish. And in English, it does not necessarily have to have an S ending or ES ending. In English, one fish or ten fish, a hundred fish, a thousand fish, you can use the same word for the singular meaning or for the plural meaning. A singular, grammatically singular word. It does not require an S or an ES, not necessarily in some English words, correct? Well, that's the way I think John the Baptist is using this word, the sin. He does not mean that there is a specific sin or only one sin, or a kind of sin that can and will be removed. And this is important to clarify, because some people think that Jesus came to remove merely and only the original sin of people. The original sin of people. And how is that taken care of? Jesus came to remove it, but then when you are baptized, that's when it actually happens. People think original sin is washed away, and that's why Jesus came. So original sin is washed away, and that original sin is the sin of Adam, right? The sin of Adam is known as the original sin. When Adam sinned, he caused all of us in him to sin and to walk away from God, to defect from God and to be born into this world with a corrupt nature. That's original sin. John the Baptist is not meaning he came only to take away original sin so that the rest of our sins, if we do more right than wrong, we do enough good works and the balance of the scales is tipped in favor of good works rather than bad works, then we go to heaven. That's not what he means. He does not mean it that way. We are guilty of original sin and we are guilty of actual sins. And it is John here teaching that the sin of the world has to do with all of our sins. They are all taken away. That's what he means by all of our sins taken away. Now, the, the, another reason why this is an important doctrine to clarify is some think that if the sin is taken away, then all of us have a blank slate and all of us have grace, equal grace, and all of us have free will, an equal will and a good will in order to do what we need to do to save ourselves. And if that means to believe in Jesus and do good works, then I'll believe in Jesus and do good works and I'll save myself from my sins. That is not the meaning of this verse. The verse is not talking about that. The verse could not be talking about any of these misunderstandings because the other parts of Scripture militate against that that false or those false interpretations. The sin of the world means all of our sins are removed. All of our sins. Summarized in the short phrase, the sin. And then lastly, in verse 29, We have this phrase of the world, the sin of the world. Well, when he says the sin of the world, does he mean every sin of every person of the world? Or does he mean every sin of the sheep who are scattered throughout the world? He means the latter. He means every sin of the sheep or the elect of the chosen ones who are scattered throughout the world. Because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in Jewish writings outside the Bible, the Jews have a way of referring to the rest of the people in the world. They will call them the Gentiles. They will call them the nations. They will call them all men. They will call them all. They will call them the world. They will call them the whole world. Whenever they want to talk about those who are not a part of the nation of Israel or the Hebrew nation or the, gen, uh, or the, the Jewish nation, when they're referring to the other people, they are often using this phrase, the world or similar universalistic phrases to refer to everybody else. That's how they talk. That's how the Bible talks in the Old and the New Testaments. And that's how it talks here. Now, let's see. From John chapter 6. Let's see from John chapter 6 that that is indeed what John the Baptist meant. John chapter 6. John chapter six, thirty two, 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of, lo- of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. You see there, verse 33, this bread of God, the bread out of heaven, who is that? That's Christ. And it says here in verse 33 that Christ gives life to the world. He gives life to the world. If it says he gives life to the world, if it means every person in the world, then that means every person in the world is saved and goes to heaven. But that's not what he meant. He meant that he gives life to all of the sheep in the world, all of the elect in the world, all of those who would believe he gives life to those people, to the believers throughout the world. That's the same way in which we should take John 1.29. Because John 1.29 and John 6.33 both say He gives life to the world and here takes away the sin of the world. Well, in John 1.29, if every person in the world, their sin is taken away, then they all should be saved. They should not pay for their sins in hell. Because... If our sins are not taken away, we die in our sins and go to hell. How do we know that? John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Either our sins are taken away or we die in them. It says here in John 8 24. John 8 24. I said therefore to you, that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. There He says it clearly, that they would die in their sins unless they believed in Him. If they don't believe in Him, then they are going to continue to have their sins be the source of their guilt and condemnation, and eternal death, and they will not receive eternal life. That means that if people die in their sins, then their sins were not taken away. They don't have eternal life. But John one twenty nine and 6.33, just to use two examples, clearly teach us that these sins are taken away of the world, and the world does receive life. So who is it in the world? It must be the world of believers, the world of the elect. Those in the world are saved and their sins are taken away. Now, we've spoken of the humanity of Christ. He actually came into the world to die for us. Now, let's look at the deity of Christ or the divine nature of Christ. Verse 30. John the Baptist acknowledges the following. Verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He said that he's been preaching this, he's been teaching this, that a man is coming after him that has a higher rank than John because he existed before John. You may recall that we've been saying that according to Luke chapter 1, the span of time in the physical birth of John the Baptist and Jesus is at least six months, okay? A six-month difference between the time that John was born and Jesus was born. So John was older in physical age than Jesus, right? But it says here, John is acknowledging that Christ has a higher rank than he does because Christ existed before him. So John must be speaking of the deity of Christ he said that in John 1 15. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John not only believes that Jesus has a human nature, but Jesus also has a divine nature. Now you may say, but it says here, man, verse 30. Yes, man. We just spoke of that in verse 29. But now he's making the connection between the man he made uh, reference to in verse 29 to the God he's referring to in verses 30 to 34. He's the man, but he's also God. Actually, the Old Testament predicts this very thing. Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. Turn back a few pages from Matthew and go to... Zechariah, Zechariah 13, verse 7, thirteen seven. God is speaking, God the Father is speaking, and he says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones." The Father is speaking, and He's saying, calling on the sword to strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. We know that this was fulfilled when Jesus was about to be crucified. Matthew 26, 31, when Jesus was about to be crucified, this is the Father ordaining that this would happen. And then Jesus' sheep, His disciples, would be scattered. They would walk away, run away from that time of arrest. Well, look here at verse 7. What else does it say about God's shepherd, God's good shepherd? Who is it? He's not only called my shepherd, he's called the man, my associate. The man, my associate. So he is the shepherd, and he is the man, and he is the associate. All gods. God's shepherd, God's man, God's associate. Now, shepherd has to do with how he is good and he lays down his life for the sheep. Man has to do with his human nature. And my associate. Who do we call associates these days? An associate is meant to convey an equal, right? Even today, many times, sometimes for political reasons, instead of calling employees employees, what do they call them? In order to make the employee feel better than you know, the, whatever position he's holding, they don't call them employees these days. They don't call them that. They try not to use the word employee. They try to use the word associate. Everybody's an associate. Everybody's an equal, even though there's still ranks in the company and in the business, right? They still call everybody an associate. Why? To make everybody think or feel that they are equal with the next person in the same business, correct? Well, in this case, God's using the word in a true sense, So who is equal to the Father? The Son. We know He's talking about the Son. So the Son of God is here called shepherd, man, and associate. Christ is called all three in this verse. And that's what John the Baptist meant. That this man who is coming, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Further, Verse 31, verses 31 and 33 begin in the same way. And I did not recognize him. And I did not recognize him. What does he mean by this? If John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ, why does he say, I did not recognize him? If John is a relative of Jesus, why did he not recognize him? It says here in verse 31, But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. In order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now, what he means is that he was not a familiar friend to Jesus. He did not know him by sight. He was not so familiar as a familiar friend or a familiar relative to Jesus that he could identify him by sight. And I say by sight. Now, to show this, look at Galatians chapter 1. Keep your hand in John and go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22. Galatians chapter 1 verse 22. Paul the apostle is explaining his conversion. Galatians 1:22, he's explaining his conversion and you may recall that after Paul's conversion, the churches were suspicious of him. They didn't trust him. They thought he might be a spy pretending to convert but really to seek him out and spy out the Christians and do them harm. Right? And the churches heard of him, many of the churches heard of him, but never actually saw him and knew what he looked like. And this is all before the days of photographs and smartphones, okay? It wasn't very easy to know who was who. You might even remember that the religious authorities had to have Judas Iscariot. They had to pay Judas Iscariot to identify Jesus in the dark in the Garden of Gethsemane so that they could arrest the correct man. And Judas gave them a sign saying, the one I kiss, he is the one. He's the one that you should arrest. So in that case, they did not recognize Jesus. Obviously, they didn't recognize him. And they needed Judas's help. And also look at Galatians 1.22 in reference to Paul. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. These are the churches of Judea which are the churches around Jerusalem in the province around Jerusalem many of those churches did not know what Paul looked like they heard of him but they never met him and heard uh, or and known him by sight paul says i was unknown by sight so i needed somebody to help me out i needed an escort i needed somebody like barnabas to help me out which barnabas did help him initially And give the churches confidence. Yes, this is Paul the apostle. He used to persecute us, but he is a real man. He's a real convert. And so don't distrust him. Receive him as a brother in Christ. And so they did. The churches did, based on Barnabas. Well, I believe that John the Baptist, in the same way, was not so familiar with the identity of Christ or the appearance of Christ that he was able to identify him and point him out. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, verse 21. Luke 3, 21. Until this point, John the Baptist did not recognize Jesus by sight. Luke 3:21 Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized and while he was praying heaven was opened and the holy spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven you are my beloved son in you i am well pleased I believe it's at this point that John receives intimation he receives acknowledgement that he is to baptize Christ and a confirmation that this specific man is to be baptized, just this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is to be baptized, was confirmed because while Christ is praying, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. So when he saw that miracle happen, he was intimated to baptize Jesus and then the bodily form of the Holy Spirit coming upon John or on Jesus in the sight of John when that was seen that's when John knew yes this is the one I've been preaching about I did not know him by sight but God has confirmed to me this is the Christ he is the one now you still might be wondering why is it why is it that John and Jesus did not know each other by sight at least John did not know Jesus by sight why was that the case I think that that was the case likely because God was trying to show to the people that John was indeed an independent and objective prophet of God. He was not somebody practicing nepotism. He was not somebody practicing favoritism towards his own family or to his closest friend. But he was an objective prophet of God who did not regard anybody at all Because God had called him to preach the truth and he was going to be fair and objective and equitable with everybody and even with Jesus so that the people would know that John did not do these things for Christ because they were relatives or because they were best friends. Nothing like that. But that he was an objective, true prophet of God, telling the people the truth. Whatever God told him, he would teach to the people. So back to John chapter 1, he repeats this fact that the Holy Spirit descended on him. John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 32, John bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom... You see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So here, he is saying openly that he saw the Holy Spirit descend miraculously in the form of a dove, as a dove out of heaven. Now, why is that necessary? Because the Holy Spirit is invisible. The Holy Spirit is invisible. Luke chapter 24, 36 to 39, Jesus said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Spirits are invisible. They don't have a material nature. You can't see them. So the Holy Spirit had to be signified, represented as a dove coming down upon Jesus for John to know, okay, this is the Holy Spirit. And the Father is speaking to John Telling John, He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John received this miraculous confirmation from the Father that he is to baptize the one upon whom he saw the Spirit descending as a dove. And then lastly, we come in verse 33. We come to this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is also repeated in Acts chapters 1 and 2. This is the miraculous way in which Jesus immerses the disciples, immerses us in the Holy Spirit. He immerses us in the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit Takes control of us, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, the Holy Spirit transforms us, the Holy Spirit gives us powers that we did not have before. That's the sense in which Christ gives us the Holy Spirit. And that is true of what happened in Acts chapter 2. The early disciples, the apostles, they were endowed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise, in order that they might carry out the ministry and preach the gospel faithfully to the people. And then now we have verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's reiterating the fact that what he saw, he testified to this. What he saw coming from God, and he was thoroughly convinced this was all from God, he testified to it, as a good witness, as a faithful witness, not as a false witness, but a true witness who taught the way of God in truth. He taught all of this. He confirms that he believes that he knew all this. You see, some people think prophets don't know they're preaching the truth, or apostles don't know they are preaching and writing the truth. People, some people think that way, but it's not true. The prophets were self-aware, self-conscious of the fact that they were hearing the word of the true and living God, the only God, and they were preaching that truth to the people. They knew it when they received it. They knew it when they preached it. They knew it when they wrote it. They knew it at all of those phases. They knew it was the words of God. John confirms that, so that we might have certainty. After all, who wants to believe somebody who does not know, or who is uncertain? Correct? Will you trust an uncertain witness in the courtroom? Or will you trust one that is a certain witness, a a witness with conviction and confidence? I tell you, I tell the judge, I tell all of the prosecutors, I tell all the people, the witnesses, the family members, the friends, the strangers who were there at the incident, I'm telling you in the sight of God. I saw that happen. This is what exactly happened. That's the kind of witness we want to hear from, right? We don't want to hear from a timid one. We don't want to hear from a witness that says, yes, I was there, but I'm not going to say anymore. We don't want to hear from anybody like that. We want to hear from somebody who has confidence, who has conviction. I saw that incident, and this is exactly what happened. We want to hear from that. Then it's up to the hearers to, to decide, what are you going to do? Are you going to believe this witness or not? In our case, we believe in John the Baptist. We believe in John the Apostle. We believe in the Holy Scriptures as written in the Holy Bible. That's what we believe in. And we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe. And therefore, we speak. 2 Corinthians 4.13 As it is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. So we believe, therefore we also speak. If we truly believe something we will speak out about it. We will speak up about it. We will verbalize it. We won't keep it as a secret in our minds and hearts. We will open our mouth and say, no, I believe this is right and that is wrong. I believe Christ is the way to God, not some other way to God. We will speak up and teach about it. That's what John did and so should we. And lastly, what does he say? That this is the Son of God which is a summary of what he's been saying since the middle part of verse 30 to our verse right here. He's the one who gives us the Holy Spirit. He's the one that saves us from our sins. He's the one that existed before the world was created, before John existed. He is the one that is the source of our salvation, the Son of God. Now this phrase, Son of God, must be clarified. Son of God does not mean that God the Father, in a literal sense, in a physical sense, had a son. And that he, and he, Jesus, was the first son. Why is that necessary? Why is that necessary to clarify? Because Mohammedans, or those who follow Islam, and Jehovah's Witnesses, They have misunderstandings about this. Mohammedans say that that the Bible teaches that Jesus was the first or, or, or a literal son of the Father. They say that we believe or the Bible teaches that the Father and Mary and Jesus, this is the Trinity and that Jesus is the offspring of the Father of God the Father. But that's not what we believe and that's not what the Bible teaches. They have misunderstood and they spread lies because they won't listen to us when we try to tell them the truth. The same with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses say in a spiritual sense, not physical but spiritually, that Jesus is the firstborn spirit or angel created by the Father and then Jesus created the rest of the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches either. He is not the firstborn son or firstborn spirit or firstborn angel, Michael the archangel, the first and foremost creation of God. He's not that. That's not what this verse means. When the Bible says son of God, it means that he's the only one with this unique son-like relationship with the Father. That's what it meant in John chapter 1, verse 18. The only begotten son. Of John 1.18 or John 3.16, the only begotten son. The only begotten means he's the only one with the sonship relationship, unique sonship relationship with the father. That's what it means. And why does he have it? Because he possesses deity. He possesses deity, eternal deity. He did not ever become a god like Mormonism teaches. He always possessed deity from all eternity past. That's the sense in which he is the son of God. When the Bible says son of God, it means he has a divine nature. And when the Bible says he is son of man, it means he has a human nature and also a divine nature. It means he has a human nature and also a divine nature. So son of God means he has the nature of God. Son of man means he has the nature of man. That's what the phrases are intended to mean, and we should believe them. The Bible teaches this from cover to cover. So may we put our faith in the Lamb of God and the Son of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.